0: Speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I have become sounding brass or a flaming symbol. And though I have the gift of
1: prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and
2: though I give my body to be burned, but have not loved, not. So you can see what the more excellent way is. It's love. Love is greater than all the spiritual gifts. Okay. Um, and what he does is he takes some of the spiritual gifts and he like raises them to the greatest conceivable limit. And he says, if I even had this without love I nothing. For example, in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, (laughs) but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, he's not saying that he can speak angelic languages. He's saying, even if I could. He raises this sort of hypothetically. You know, if I got the deluxe version. (laughs) You know, if I had tongues uh, of a kind that nobody else would have. You know, and you think about, Wow. What if we could speak with the tongues of men? What if we could even speak with the languages of angels? You know, and, and can you imagine some of the people drinking, I oh, want that one. You know, what do I need to do? And then he just yanks the carpet right under their feet, their rug. You know, it's like, well, you're nothing. Without love, you're just a bunch of loud climbers. You know, you're just a bunch of noise and getting attention. But no real value without love. Or what if I have to give their prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith as to remove mountains. Now, wow! I mean, they thought they knew a lot, but I guess they probably realized they didn't have all knowledge. and know all mysteries. They didn't even think that What would that be great? You know, wow, can't you see them uh, you know salivating when they think about getting that gift? He says, without love, well, I'm (laughs) not. You know, and then he says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, I mean, wow, what a sacrifice. Now, it's true that love sacrifices itself, but not all self-sacrifice comes from love. And if it doesn't, even if you give all your possession to feed the poor, even if you give your body to be burned, if you do it without love, it profits me nothing. So here you have all tongues, the infinite prophecy, and faith, and giving all my possession to be the poor, and my body to be burned. If you have all of this without love, in God's math, five minus one is zero. You have all of these, but no love. You're nothing to make five say. That's how important love is. It's way better than, than the greatest possible hypothetical idea you could have of a gift. Raise the gift to anything. And without love, it's done. That is a powerful statement. And powerful for these brethren who just really treasure these gifts. Thoughts and comments? Yes? You know, when when we see sin being more openly accepted in, in society,
1: it's tempting to think that running in the exact opposite direction would be a productive path. But we have groups, you know, extreme groups like the Westboro Baptist Church you know, they're, they're zealous workers. They definitely believe in God. And yet, you know, where is, their, where is their love for their neighbor? Sure.
2: Yeah. Without love, we're nothing. I mean, the first commandment, love God. The second one, love our neighbor. Okay. I mean, without the first and second, where are we? Nowhere. Paul's yes, language here
1: to me is, uh, like you said, incredibly strong. I think like a progression that first says, if I have all these things, but don't have love, I give nothing. The think I give is worthless. He then says, if I have all this knowledge, I am nothing. And then he finally says, without love, I profit nothing. So without love, I give nothing, I am nothing, and I give
2: nothing. That's not all <laughs> point. Amen. Other thoughts? Yes.
1: Not only does it not profit yourself nothing, but it doesn't profit the church anything. You're like right. We, like we talked about before, it was set up where these gifts, where you need each other, you depend on each other. But if you don't have that love, and we see this attitude of trying to be self-sufficient,
2: what good does that do to help spread the gospel? Yes. Great point. Other thoughts? Kendra. So, we have to not only do the right thing, but have the right motivation. We must be motivated by love. Is that... Yes, John? Could you help me understand exactly what
1: love is? Define it. Is it something we do? Is it something
2: we feel? Is it the right something? Well, really, the next section is doing exactly that. That's exactly where he's going with this the divine love. And really, when he does that, he's going to do so in contrast with the Corinthian behavior. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute. Let me show you something. There is just a lot of myth about the Bible words for love. And uh, you'd be surprised to find this whole deal about agape and phileo love is not really where it's at. Um, In the Old Testament... There are a number of passages that use agape in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, that, that the Lord often used. Passages like 2 Samuel 13 and verse 4. Then Amnon said to him, I am in love, agape, with Hamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Can you believe he used agape there that translation? Not from the things we're told about. You've got lots of passages in the New Testament that use phileo that you just wouldn't have thought so. You would have thought that has to be agape, like John 5, verse 20. Uh, For the father loves the son, phileo, not agape. And uh, then there's the New Testament passages that use agape, like Demas has forsaken me having loved agape this present world, and love not the world, First John 2, that's agape or the relevant equivalents, I realize when we say agape that's the noun, phileo is the verb so we kind of make those up that's the way I've more commonly heard people talk about it. they love the praise of men rather than the praise of God, that's agape and so forth so if uh, you get the charts you can look up those uh, verses and, and here's the deal alright here's my appeal I may be too strong with this but I think we'd be better off 99% of the time to just give up statements about Greek here's the problem you know you take good Bible translations by reputable scholars they know a bunch more about Greek than we do so we take some Bible study tools. We get interlinear or concordance or even a Greek dictionary. But we're not very well qualified to even understand what they all mean or how to use them. And so we'll say, Yeah, I know the translations say this, but the real meaning is. Well, most of the time when we do that, we're wrong. We're a lot more likely to be wrong than right. And this agape Vallejo thing is a good example. You hear all kinds of stuff about that. But you actually examine it, it's not true. Now, we could have done a little bit of legwork and figure that out if we had actually gone to just looking back those words up, we could do that. And actually just listing them and saying, okay, these well, these are bad. Well, these passages. <laughs> um, but what we often do is we do just a little bit of research. We read a little something somewhere, and we think we know what we're talking about. And I, so I will be using this. I don't really care uh, whether you make some invalid argument about agape or I don't know that it's hurting a great deal. But but I, when, when we start doing those things, we usually end up making some invalid points and confusing ourselves and others. It'd be better, I think, be, without the qualification be extremely extremely cautious about using things that we really don't know what to dealing with and, and when I've heard those kinds of arguments I hear people in the Bible class saying oh yeah but what it really means it, it's just normally better in the translation of the scholars than it is in whatever smattering of things I've picked up somewhere along the line so that's Think about that or whatever you want. Thoughts and comments further about any of that right? or anything three before we go to the definition of love. Yes. So I mean
1: we're not gonna use Agape or Pileo for what do we use for the word love? I mean most translations use the
0: word love. When it says love, there's a lot of definitions for the word love and use for that. Definition.
2: I don't think there's any real deal. Between I think the definition here in 1 Corinthians 13 will work really there's, all. There's not an appreciable amount of difference. There will be passages like in John 11 where it says that Jesus loved Agape, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and the Phileo, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Tons of those. The Father loved the Son, says both Agape and Phileo. Look, there might be a, there's almost always just a town. You know, what if you try to do it in English? What's the difference between big and large? Well, I suspect there's some smidgen of difference. I'm not exactly sure what that is at the moment. But I suspect if if you did a a linguistic study, that you would find that there's actually a slightly different semantic range. It's hard to have two words absolutely, precisely identical. But essentially, big and large are the same thing. And if you look at the two passages, and one of them said big, and the other one said large, don't make some point about we see this when you use big, and that when you use large. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing, essentially. So I think we see love the same. It doesn't really matter which word is used. And almost always, our translation translates a both as love, which is important. That's what it means. Uh, and so I think we just don't try to make something more out of that than just that they be loved. Okay. All right, so what does love mean? Let's go to 4 to 7. Love is
1: patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. Love does not brag and it's not arrogant, does not act unbecoming. Does not seek its own, does not revel, does not take an account of all suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things.
2: Okay, now there's two positive affirmations about love. They then eight clauses that say what love doesn't do, and four affirmations of what love always does. It's interesting. That when he tries to describe love, he uses verbs, not adjectives. He talks about what love does. Love's active. Love's dynamic. There's really nothing in this list that's particularly sentimental or feeling. It's more behavioral. More talks about the lifestyle of love. Now, if you look at this list, start with love is patient. It perfectly describes God's love for us. He's patient, he's kind, he's not jealous. He doesn't brag, he's not arrogant, so forth and so on. And it pretty much is the opposite of what we know about the Corinthians. He didn't pick this out at random. He described love in terms that particularly impact them. Love is patient. They weren't. Kind, not them. Not jealous, they were jealous. Not and not arrogant, they were self-promoting and puffed up. Does not act unbecomingly, they were selfish. Does not provoke, they were irritable. Does not take into account a wrong supper, they were resentful and critical. And all this sort of thing. They were pretty much the opposite. I think he's trying to describe love in a way that will get them to think about the fact they need to humble themselves and start loving so they look at what he says. You know, love is patient. You know, long tempered doesn't fly off the handle quickly. Love is kind. You know, serves others, cares about others. Love is not jealous, not pride, not arrogant. You know, love isn't trying to put other people down or building ourselves up. Trying to impress people with ourselves doesn't show off. You know, so many times in Corinthians, they're arrogant, they're prideful. And, and love is not. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. It's not uh, rude. It's sensitive. It's well-mannered. It's not overbearing. It's not disruptive. It doesn't elbow its way into conversation and monopolize on time and attention. It's not self-seeking. It's not provoked. Love's not touchy. Love's not just got to wait for some misdeed at which to take offense. And love does not keep score. Doesn't take an account of wrong suffering. Doesn't keep a tally. Uh, Love rejoices with the truth, not with unrighteousness. We don't take pleasure in somebody else's failure. We want them to do well. If the situation's bad, we try to help If it's good, we want to celebrate. Love bears all things, believes all things, puts the best possible construction on doubtful actions. Not skeptical. Love hopes all things. For love, there's no hopeless cases. Endures all things, holds out during trouble and affliction. Now notice, we've got faith over love here. Believes and hopes is a part of love. So those three prepare us for verse 13. And he finally says, love never fails. Love, love never folds under pressure. Love never collapses and defeated, It doesn't fall apart. Love's always powerful and active. That's love. I mean, that's, that's a lot to think about. I, I've sometimes taught this. Think about the person at your church you like the least. You know, if I said, think about the person in your church you hate the most. You know what we always have to anyway. So who's the person you like the least? And then say, I, I am patient toward him. I'm kind to him. I'm not jealous of him. I don't brag. I'm not arrogant toward him. I'm not rude to him. I'm not selfish toward him. I'm not provoked by him. I'm not resentful. And all those things. That's a really good way to look at that passage. You know, because I need to love all of my brethren. Maybe sometimes it's not bad to look at this toward our husband or wife. You know, we ought to have a loving relationship, but we're challenged that sometimes. <coughs> Pause and comment.
3: David. Oh, I have an question. So, God has said that He is a jealous God in in that, you know, if we stray or idolatrous, that he's a jealous God in that respect. How how would you, what, what would you say would be the difference between that aspect of God and his love not being a jealous love?
2: Yeah, I, I think God doesn't tolerate life. You know, he expects exclusive loyalty. This jealousy is just uh, like the idea of uh, not wanting other people to do well, you know, the competitiveness and things like that. Andrew.
1: For me, this has always been one of the passages of 1 Corinthians that's always taken out of context. And granted, it's a beautiful passage, but to now see it in context, it makes so much more sense. Sure. And it got me to thinking about where Paul says in Colossians 3.14 about how love is the perfect bond of unity. And it makes so much sense that he would be telling the Corinthians about what love is um, because in chapter 1 he says, you know, I've been informed that there are divisions among you. So now he's telling them what love is and that's going to bring them closer together and make them more united.
2: Absolutely. They need love. Read 1 Corinthians. What chapter does he deal with things that love wouldn't help? You know, so clearly this is what they need. Austin. Awesome. Well, how
1: often do we think that that Division is the other side, right? And Paul addresses both sides. From, from the 11th chapter where he talks about that division, that's affecting both sides. And and I think oftentimes we find ourselves on the right side and everybody else on the wrong side. But love is the opposite of that. Love finds us trying to unite that, that division and that divide.
2: Amen. For the folks,
0: Jason. Yeah, uh, thinking about the Corinthians in general, there's a, a lot that we've read so far that they struggle with, problems they've had, issues they've had, that uh, it's easy to really look down on them and think, man, they, they did not have it together at all. But really, they epitomize a lot of what our human nature is. I mean, just being so focused on seeking to please yourself, being self-centered, being focused on things that are uh, merely external and, and flashy and oppressive to others. Um, when, and not so much focused on things that are harder to, to quantify and, and harder to get praise for. Uh, you know, and, and when we think of it like that, I mean, that's us. You know, we uh, a lot of times spend so much time focusing on the physical things. You know, we forget the spiritual applications and we forget uh, what our life or the things that we're doing does to the Lord and our relationship with Him.
2: Amen. Good thoughts. Other thoughts? Awesome. The
1: other thing that I like that Paul does in this section is he, you know, he puts this onus on him at the beginning. He says, that I do these things, if I, or I. And, and I wonder if we approach things in that situation when, when we have these divisions and this. Non-love, if you allow, if, if we would sort of put ourselves in the place of that other person, and, and I think Paul does that so often throughout this book. He, he he lets them know where their wrong points went, but then in this situation, he he sort of gives them the, the ability to see their wrong on their own, and helps guide them to that. And maybe if we took that approach
2: more often, we would have head mm-hmm. I Amen. Good points. Well, remember his point. The point is, love is a more excellent way. And he shows you that love is a more excellent way because you can have the gifts to the nth degree and without love you're nothing. And he shows you how love behaves. But he's got one more argument to show how love is superior to the spiritual gifts. Look at, somebody read 8 to 13?
3: Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see it a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. Okay.
2: Love never fails. Love is unending. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, they'll cease. You see the contrast. The spiritual gifts will end. Love does not... That means love is better than the spiritual gifts. They ought to quit squabbling about tongues and all that because they aren't destined for a long life anyway. So you've got the triad here of the prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. They cease. In contrast with verse 13, faith, hope, and love, that triad abides. You've got the spiritual gifts ceasing, faith, hope, and love abiding. Why do these spiritual gifts cease? Well, he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial we done away with. The reason they cease is they're partial. When prophecy was given in the first century, it was given part by part. It was not all at once. And so, when the completed, when the, when the prophecy was completed, when we knew fully, then the partial was done away with. If the prophecy refers to partial revelation, the prophesying in part, then the perfect is the completed revelation. When the structure was completed, the scaffolding was removed. When God got the revelation complete, then the spiritual gifts, which were given to build the revelation to its completeness, were taken away. Their function was fulfilled. So he's saying, all right, love doesn't end, spiritual gifts do. They end because they're in parts. And when the when the perfect comes, when you add all the parts all of the Revelation, then the parts were run away. He illustrates that by saying it's like being childhood and adulthood. When you're a child, you speak, you think, and you reason like a child. But in manhood, you're in childish things. And the childhood of the church, the childhood of the Revelation, they have the tongues, the prophecies, and the knowledge. When they reach adulthood, the childhood era passes. He illustrates it with a mirror. Think about going to the department store and having a full-length mirror. Now, what if there were only certain pieces to that mirror in other parts were the You could see it, but it wouldn't be very clear. It'd be kind of distorted. But what happens when you go up to a full-length mirror, freshly waxed, freshly not waxed up, uh, Polished. That's not, not even clean, I guess. I don't know. What do you do? Use some Windex on it. Freshly Windexed. And wiped out. And you, you go up there and you look in that mirror. What do you see? Your reflection. You see yourself face to face. So you've got the dim mirror seating. You don't see the whole picture. But then you get the complete revelation, and you have face-to-face seeing. You see yourself. Now, the word is intended to be a mirror through which we can see ourselves. James chapter 1 says so. We misuse it a lot. We sometimes use the word more as a window to see other people than as a mirror to analyze our own failings. But the word is intended first to be a mirror. But a mirror where we see ourselves face to face. So he's not talking about what they see, but how they see. And so we've got this era of the childhood, the dim mirror seeing, the knowing in part. We've got the era of the adulthood. We see ourselves face to face. We know fully. That's when the revelation was completed. When we when the end when we get to the goal, the process of revealing the message, a part at a time, and we have the full revelation, which would occur in the apostolic age, then the parts were done away with. Now he says, faith, hope, and love abide; they remain. So he's he's making the contrast and saying, love is greater. Love lasts, the gifts don't. The gifts don't last, but faith, hope, and love last. Well, that tells me something. The gifts cease before faith and hope cease. Now, he says in verse 13 that the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? In this passage, because love is the only one that lasts forever. What happens when Jesus comes back? We walk by faith and not by sight. When we see, we don't have faith. We have knowledge. We have sight. Hope that is seen is not hope for what we don't hope for what we have. Romans eight. So hope ceases when Jesus comes back. So faith and hope abide when the spiritual gifts cease. But, but when Jesus returns, only love remains. You know, God, by his nature, does not trust or hope that he embodies love. Love is the one abiding quality. So love is greater than the spiritual gifts. Because love outlasts the spiritual gifts that cease. Even outlasts the faith and hope that abide. But at the second coming, they cease too. Love lasts forever. Now, so you've got this idea of three periods of time. You've got the time period of the spiritual gifts, plus faith, open love. Then you've got the time period where you've got the faith, hope, and love abiding, and the spiritual gifts have ceased. And then you've got the time when Jesus comes back and only love continues. That's why it's the greatest of these, it lasts the longest. So if somebody tries to say the perfect coming is Jesus coming back, or the perfect state in heaven, or something like that, that doesn't work. Because that would have the spiritual gifts ceasing at the same time faith and hope cease, But he has the spiritual gifts ceasing while faith and hope still abide. And then love being the one that lasts forever. Love is better than spiritual gifts. Because you can have any spiritual gift you want without love, it's nothing. And because love lasts longer than the spiritual gifts. Once you see this passage in its context... It's easy to see that God did not intend the spiritual gifts to continue after he completed the revelation. Questions and comments? Okay. Let's go. Romans 8, verse 24 and 25. Stay safe mm <laughs> in your thinking. Yet an evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Children like things that are flashy and go fast and, you know, bright colors and, you know, things like that. But we need to mature and develop a, a more um, you know, just more adult view of things. Rachel. Rachel. Okay. Probably in general, especially love of brethren for each other.
1: And yes. You, uh, uh, said, uh, how mm-hmm. the, the gifts in Revelation were going to end in the afterlife age, which I agree with, um, and I think this has helped that, but someone could make the claim, and could make it like, well, te- in the text doesn't say when that's going to end, it just, that it ends or
2: page
1: hey, love. Right. Um, so how would you else help? When
2: know. the perfect comes, right. the part's done away. Yeah. So if the partial is the partial revelation, when the revelation is completed, then it wasn't John 1.45 says the revert to the, the new page is the perfect
3: law. James 1.45. Michael. Can so I even talk
1: to you about this?
2: that depends how do we talk to people who've seen America um, I've done several things in Brazil, I commonly challenge the evidence like the time I've used this illustration a lot, but it never man this was the most amazing thing. We had these open studies in São Paulo and they Saturday Saturday the afternoons passed out and over the course of time a few hundred thousand flyers on the streets to invite people and had tons of people this guy comes to the study, there weren't many Christians in that study as I would call it. there were probably ten people in the study and he starts going off about this guy in cells a suburb of Sao Paulo. that heals the blind he can heal the blind, he's been there and seen it he heals blind people and he just, oh he's so, so well by this and all that I mean, you know, I hadn't seen the guy. I hadn't heard it about the guy. I didn't know anything about it. Here's what I did. I said, you know, can you take me to see him? I want to see this. I said, I've got a friend back in the U.S. He's been to several of these healers to try to be healed. He can't see light and dark. He can't see anything. And he would love to be healed. Can we go? Can we set a time? And we'll go and see. Because I want to I witness started stammering and stuttering and spluttering and whatever and he finally got out that well if you don't have spiritual eyes you probably won't be able to see (laughs) after all he said he knew good well it wasn't happening that was amazing this was probably a 20 year old and he said it with such fervor that I didn't know how else to deal with it but say let's go look and, and that, that call is blood. I sometimes would just say, I don't believe Because sometimes the evidence is just not there. It's not, a, it's not a reasonable story. Sometimes people have weird definitions of a miracle. If they say, I can show you somebody that was sick and got healed, okay? There are sick people who get healed by the Lord. You know, there's no, no problem with that. I believe we can pray and God answers our prayers. So that's no big deal. Now they say, you know, here's a blind man who can see, that's a different matter. But they're saying, here's somebody who got sick and then he got well. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But that doesn't prove that, you know, there's some spiritual gift someone has. Um, I don't doubt. The possibility of something happening that I cannot explain. Like Deuteronomy 13. When the sign takes place or the prophecy comes to pass, but they said, go after idols. Now, I know it's not true. I can't explain everything. Now, I don't believe anybody today is doing anything close to what Jesus did. Somebody's telling me, you know, they're raising the dead, let's go see he Somebody says, you know, we're, we're changing water to wine, I'd like to witness that. If well, they're feeding 5,000 men with five sandwiches, let's go. They're usually not even alleging that. But can there be some things I have no idea how to explain, of course. Yeah, I don't have all the explanations. So it really a little bit depends for me on what they're saying as to how I approach it. That may have been too extensive, I do think about those things a lot because I deal with them constantly in Brazil. Jake?
1: Um, Let me say one thing that
2: we could use as a definition of a a true spiritual gift
1: would be does it reaffirm the scripture? Does it complete anything? Does it uh, reveal anything? Because that's what was going on in the first century when we did have spiritual gifts. Who's it authorized by? It was specifically authorized by certain people uh, that were representative by God. God would call those people you know, show us the evidence of that, there is none. I mean, so that's, that's probably, you know, what I would say, you know, if you claim that you saw it, or, you know, and you, you claim any legitimacy, then, you know, back it up with, okay, in the Bible, if you're claiming that that's, it's one of those spiritual gifts in the Bible, look at what they, how they backed it up,
2: is that is it going to be backed up in that way? Okay. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Well he moves on
1: in chapter fourteen to talk